señorita Really nice to meet ya Have some tequila and stay This week on Squats and Margaritas, it's best-selling author of This Naked Mind, Annie Grace. It's a book I just finished. Control alcohol, find freedom, discover happiness, change your life. Maybe it ruins my brand, but above all, I want to be authentic and I have been looking at my drinking. I do want to drink less and admittedly, I do drink less after reading This Naked Mind. So I have Annie Grace here today to kind of talk me through my moderate drinking and why I'm concerned that I can't stop moderate drinking. Is that a problem? Um, I want her to share her story. At one point, she was drinking almost two bottles of wine a night, and she came up with this program to rewire how your brain sees alcohol so that you don't even want it. You're not even tempted. Please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this. It will help me out and it will help you out because you will get an alert as soon as a new episode drops. Here is my episode with Annie Grace. I'm very glad that you said yes to someone that has margaritas in the name of their podcast. Oh yeah, sure. No problem. (laughs) Seriously, because you're probably like, what does this woman want to talk about? But as you can probably see, I've been tagging you in everything. I am sober curious. That's so awesome. I love Thank that. You. And I can also say after reading your book, um, I am definitely drinking less than I was. So oh, that's great. Thank, thank you for that. Thank you for saying yes. What I would love for this to be is just a direct, like, don't hold back. <laughs> Call right. me on my bullshit. Like if I say something and you're like, actually, that's not really like, I will not be defensive. I want this to be real. And for another mom, that's kind of like looking at their uh, relationship with alcohol, like be direct, don't hold back. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So I wanted to start, obviously you don't drink, so we don't have that in common. However, we both went through something, um, uh, we're recovered and now we share our story to empower and inspire other women. Mine was anorexia and bulimia and yours was your struggle with alcohol. So I wanted to start there with your story. Can you talk about Annie in her mid thirties in the corporate world and how your relationship with drinking kind of started? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it was really interesting. I actually was raised in a very unique circumstance. I was actually raised by very hippie parents and on a cabin, uh, in a cabin on the backside of a mountain, there was no running water, no electricity. Why this is relevant is because they were super organic, very health conscious, didn't drink alcohol. So I didn't really have that much of a cautionary tale. And I remember going, you know, trying it, not really liking the taste, going to college, not really drinking much here and there, but it very much like it was, it was irrelevant in my life. It was just like, okay, people drink other people don't, no big deal. Didn't feel a huge amount of peer pressure. Wasn't really in a peer group that was pressuring me to drink. And then I got married and I moved to New York city, Uh, literally got married on a Saturday, went on our honeymoon by the next Saturday, we were uprooted from Colorado and living in an apartment in Brooklyn. And I remember one of my first days out on the job, the boss asked me um, out to happy hour. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I went out and I ordered a cosmopolitan because I'd been watching lots of sex in the city. I figured that was what you ordered. That's what and, you do. Uh, <laughs> that's what you do. It was not, it was like, they're like, okay, sure. You know, uh, but anyway, it was a $25 drink and this was in 2005. And I was just like, all right, that's ridiculous. Like, there's mm-hmm. no way I'm going to, you know, we're trying to pay off, you know, 
$100,000 in student loan debt. We're not going to do this. And so I didn't, I stopped going to happy hour um, after really my first one. And I got promoted. I was actually in a different role with a different boss. And he came to me and he was like, why don't you ever show up at happy hour? Like, I was like, oh, I don't really drink. And he's like, oh, oh, put your arm, my arm around you. That is not, that's not what it's about. Like, this is where you know, we're all too busy during the day. This is where the deals get done. This is where you showcase your ideas. This is where you meet the higher ups who are in town from London. This is all the things. And so I actually had a method and I said, okay, I'm going to use alcohol very intentionally. It's like a tool and I'm going to have a glass of wine and then a pint of water, make sure I alternate, make sure I never get too drunk. That worked for some time, but then I would get like real tipsy and I would go into the bathroom. I would throw up the last glass of wine just to keep up with all of these people who were almost entirely men, mostly had 10 to 15 years on me. And, um, and you know, the, the long and short of it is fast forward 10 years later, drinking occasionally at happy hour socially, I'd go home. Well, this was pretty quick actually, but I'd go home and I'd look at my running shoes and I'd pass a bodega and think, oh, well, I could just get a bottle of wine. That would be do the same thing, right? It, it makes me feel better. It relaxes me. So I pick up the wine, um, forget the run. I, I kind of like to describe it as if I had, you know, if, if there's a stool and there was a lot of different things propping up my human experience, right? Like mm-hmm. we're, we're humans and we need all this maintenance, which is something I didn't really realize until I was older. And, but it's true. Like we need all these things to help us maintain the fact that we're human and human is hard. And so I was, I was exercising. I was reading a lot. I was trying to connect with people. Um, I was doing all of these things and alcohol wasn't one of them. And when alcohol came on the scene, it, it felt easier. It's certainly addictive. All of those little ways I was coping kind of, you know, all of a sudden my stool, the one way of coping was alcohol and it was the weakest link, but it's all I did. And, you know, 10 years later, I've got two little boys. I, it worked. My, my career skyrocketed. I was traveling all around the world, um, two international trips a month, often multiple countries, each trip. And I was drinking two bottles of wine pretty much every single night, if not more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just did what most people did say, all right, well, I'm just going to drink less. Should be easy, right? Should be no problem. Yeah. And on, on one hand, it was no problem in that I could physically drink less without an issue. I, I didn't have withdrawal. I, I think it, it, just fun statistic, maybe not so fun, but according to the CDC, only 10% of excessive drinkers, so not 10% of all drinkers, but only 10% of excessive drinkers are chemically dependent on alcohol. Whoa. And so 90% of excessive drinkers, and that means, you know, exceeding the daily allotment of drinks, which for women is one a day for men is, um, about two a day, just under 90% are not chemically addicted. So it's not a physical addiction thing. It's very mental. Um, but I was for sure in that I was not, I, I could stop. I could take a break. I could stop for a week. I had no symptoms when I would drink less or stop drinking physically. Now, mentally, I felt deprived. I felt like I was missing out. I felt like, what's the point? I remember thinking, gosh, if I'm the designated driver, why even go? Like, it's just going <laughs> to suck. <it>. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All the liminal points that you give in your book. And I wanted you to like touch on all those after I share my story with you, just in case 
anybody's just holding on to one of those. Well, I won't have yeah. fun anymore. It, it relaxes me, but does it relax you? Like your book has completely changed how I look at alcohol. For me, I struggled for two decades with no self-worth, uh, negative body image, every eating disorder. Bulimia was my one that I struggled with the most for 10 years. And when I finally found a lifestyle of balance, um, for me, it was after I had my kids, kind of like you, um, I, I got through all that restriction and deprivation and everything that I was doing that was hurting my body, but I was still like, I mean, I can't say I got rid of a restriction. I stopped throwing up my food, but I was still living in such a, like everything was off limits, which makes it more tempting for me yep. because yep. it's more enticing. You can't have it. It's like, oh, so I, for living that way, first of all, I was 20 pounds heavier. I was frustrated all the time because I was just so focused on reaching this physical ideal that I could not reach. When I started living with balance, which is what squats and margaritas was based on, it's about moderation. And nothing for me now is off limits because I just don't do well with that. I am very aware that you don't say sober, like you're not saying it's off limits. You say no, you can have never. a drink, you can drink as much as you want whenever you want, which is exactly how I'd have to look at it. It can't be off limits. Can't yeah. say that I'm sober. So my brand and my platform and what I preach now is living a balanced lifestyle. Instead mm -hmm. of working out seven days a week, like I used to over exercising, under eating, alcohol's off limits, sugar's off limits. Now nothing is off limits. I work out four times a week. I do have a cocktail or two daily. We're going to get into it, but it makes it less enticing to me before it would be like, I'm not drinking all week. Then Saturday night is going to be my drinking night. And then I drink all the wine I'm hungover on Sunday. Um, like, and I had to finish it. It's like, well, Monday's not a drinking yeah. day. There were so many rules. Like there's wine open in my fridge right now. And it's okay. Before it'd be like, I got to drink it because the rules, I just, I can't live with all those rules. So I started this platform of squats and margaritas preaching this balanced lifestyle. And it, I truly drink in moderation. And I've done a couple of shows with people that are sober. Like I've been the guest and they tell me at the end, they're like, when I started to talk to you, I was like this, like fitness influencer who drinks on the weekends. And they're like, that's not it at all. Like you truly moderate. And I want to go through that because I know how, like you have a whole chapter on moderation and it's like, I feel like I'm the exception. I'm sure you hear that all of the time. I'm your friend. His name is probably not Todd. You probably just called him Todd in the book that has that one beer on Friday, one beer on Saturday, yeah. because it's not off limits. It is something I look forward to, but I hear myself. If you're looking forward to it, you're still seeing it as something that is pleasurable. I still have the cognitive dissonance. Like I know that it's not good for me. I do not drink to excess right now. I also know that alcoholism is a progressive disease, all this from your book, but I moderate and I have been able to moderate for a very long time. I will have like a drink. Sometimes I have a beer with lunch. Sometimes, and then I'll have like a beer with dinner or a glass of wine with dinner. I will not do anything that fucks up my sleep. So I don't drink at night. I don't have a glass. If I have a glass of wine with dinner, I don't have a second one. Um, I don't binge drink. And what I notice, I, I hate, I don't understand binge drinking. Like if we go out to watch a football game and I'm with a group of people and it's a three hour game, I truly, Annie will have like a beer. Maybe in three hours, I'll have a second beer, but it's like the tab comes and everybody throws in their card and I'll look and like, I had a beer and everybody else had seven beers. And I'm always like, I don't want to be like, excuse me, everyone right. <laughs> up on my pedestal. I only had one, but I notice that people around me binge drink and drink more. I don't do that. But on the same note, I can't not 
have my beer with lunch or my glass of wine with dinner. So it's like, am I addicted to moderate drinking? Is that a thing? This is such a great topic of conversation. I'm so glad we're having it. I mean, I like just on a personal <laughs> level, I'm, I'm so frustrated with the paradigm of all or nothing in black and white. I, th- I don't think it serves us. I think it perpetuates the shame cycle. I think it perpetuates the guilt and the blame cycle. And I think that it creates this place where people who may benefit from questioning their drinking or drinking less are unwilling to because the paradigm says, oh, if I even question it, then I have a problem Then I need to get sober. And uh, I had a friend who she described it like this. And I I think it's one of the best um, analogies that I've heard, but she basically said, what we do in our society around alcohol is kind of like this. You go to your doctor and you're like, Hey, my wrist hurts a little bit. And the doctor says, Oh, Oh, your wrist hurts. Oh my gosh. Your wrist hurts. It's amputated at the, at the shoulder. And so you walk out and you're like, <laughs> okay, well, no. <laughs> yeah. And then you go back because now like not only your wrist hurts, but your elbows hurting. And the doctor says, no, okay. Amputated the shoulder, 90 meetings in 90 days, call yourself <laughs> an alcoholic, get sober. This is what you have to do. If you're even at, if you're, if your wrist or your shoulder, like, that's it. That's the yeah. answer. That's yeah. the solution. I have one hammer everything's a nail. <laughs> and, you know, then we walk out and then eventually, because we were certainly willing to have this conversation at many points along the journey, mm-hmm. but we were rejected out of the conversation by either the paradigm. So this is either happening in our own head, or we literally actually do go to the doctor and like, there's not a lot of, of, of solutions for, for the wrist hurting. Right. And then eventually things do get bad enough where we're like, okay, fine, amputate at the shoulder. But why are we, why are we creating that rock bottom experience? Which I think this whole black and white narrative does so truly. Um, And I also think it's just worth saying that I, so I actually have uh, um, just an online free ebook I, I wrote and it's six things you need to know about moderation, according to science. <laughs> and it's at canimoderate.com. And the interesting thing about this ebook that I put together is like right up front, we need to know that this isn't a bait and switch, right? I'm not going to like come <laughs> and be like, oh no, moderation is impossible. But I feel like if we know the facts, mm-hmm. then we can make the right decision for us. Yes. I really like how Mark Manson talks about it. And I mean, this is a, an ancient paradigm of, okay, life is always going to be problems. You just have to decide what problems do you want, right? Do you want the problem of, you know, never drinking again and everything that entails? Or do you want the problem of spending the mental effort and thought process and the cognitive dissonance? to drink occasionally. And that should always be entirely up to you. I think that human beings, like, especially adults, like we know we're adults. So when somebody tries to put rules on us, we're going to do our own thing anyway. Like, and so anybody who's, who's telling you, in my opinion, that this is the way, or this is the only way I think is actually guiding you away from your inner wisdom, which is going to know what's right for you. Mm -hmm. But I think the only way to access your inner wisdom is by really having some major honesty day conversations that are just completely drenched in self-compassion. Like there's no wrong answer. I'm just getting curious and yes. I'm just getting super curious about what is the cost of this, yeah. you know? Um, and if there's not that big of a cost, 
and it's easy for you to do, then let's forget everything that everybody has told us in society about that being like, who cares? You know, I have a, I have another friend. I have a lot of friends who, who drink on occasion. I have one friend who he took two and a half years off drinking and now he drinks, um, at the holidays, he'll have, you know, some whiskeys with his dad. Cause that's kind of their thing mm-hmm. and he'll drink on his birthday. And so whatever, a few times a year, there's another guy and he's been doing this for over 20 years. And it's very similar to what you were talking about before with the intense rules. I think there's probably much more of a cost to what he's doing than, than what you're doing, but he won't drink anything during the week. And then he turns off his phone. So he can't drunk text <laughs> hides his keys so he won't drunk drive and he gets wasted every Friday night and then spends Saturday hungover. Now to me, that doesn't sound like fun. No. Like I I'm just like that, that just sounds terrible, but yes. for him that keeps him from I get that. doing it every night. Right. I get that. Like the friend you talk about in your book and I want to make it clear. Like I don't drink like on occasion, like I do drink every day, but it's like my sisters who all I was, I'm the oldest. They all drink more than I do. It's like, they laugh. They're like, Aaron, like you drink every day. You have a beer that's not drinking every day. And I'm like, I hear you, but I can't not. So I get concerned. And I got concerned like with your book, when you're like, it's a progressive disease, you can moderate now, but it's like, should I catch it now? I I think what I'm doing is from your book, I am aware and I'm willing to go there. Like, I know a lot of women that they have to know that it's a situation. Like they have and I want you to talk about how to know if it's a situation, but they won't, like you said, go there. Like they don't even want to, you don't want to mess with it. Like, cause you, you don't want to not have alcohol in your life. Like I go there and I honestly, there was a point where I listened to your book twice <laughs> on audio and I was coming back. It was like a month ago. And I set this ridiculous goal in my head. I guess not ridiculous that I was like going to be sober when we did this interview. And I was like, that was the plan. Like I'm going to, cause I'm drinking less, but then I like really look at it. I don't want to be, and I know we don't say that word. Sorry. I was going to not, I was going to choose oh, not to have alcohol. I very much enjoy a glass of wine with my meals or a, it's all a pairing. And I've, I've really looked at this and I feel like because so long food for me was a vehicle for throwing up. It was something to take away. It was off limits. Now after coming out of that mess, I truly enjoy my meals. It's like an experience. And if I have wings or tacos, I want an IPA and I don't want this. The other thing is like, I, I drink what I love. And if it's, if I'm at a baseball game and they just have like shitty beer, there was a time in my life when I'm like, it's beer. I just get a beer. Cause there's beer and you can have a buzz. Like I don't do that. I drink something. If there's an IPA, I'm getting it. If there's a dirty martini with blue cheese stuffed olives, I'm getting it. Like I'm not drinking just to drink. And I'm realizing just how rare that is. I was interviewing a a mom. She just had a baby and she's like, and I can't drink. And I was like, oh, you can have wine because she was nursing. And she goes, well, what's the point of one glass of wine? Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh, for me, it's everything. Like if I got a glass of wine, I'm good. And I was like, oh, people don't think that way. Like I, I'm look, I truly can moderate. And then on the other hand, like, I don't want to say I drink every day and push that agenda on someone that can't moderate. Like for me, have being able to have my glass of wine or having a beer and a glass of wine every day, not even in succession with my meals. I never overdo it. I'm not hung over. And then on Saturday night, when like we go out, it's not, I don't have a need to get three or four. It's something I have every day. It's part of my lifestyle. So it's not as enticing. Like I don't 
over drink. And this works for me, but I'm concerned that it works for me now. And that everybody at one point could moderate. And you said it was like 10 years. Like, when were you going from like starting drinking and like at the happy hours to two bottles of wine a night? Was that a 10 year process? Well, I think, so I think it's really important to like, for the purposes of this conversation to like start with some ground rules, right? So the ground rules are like the (laughs) principles are, and, and these are so important because they're so vital, no matter where you land for you to understand that like, I believe that true lasting change only works when we get insanely curious about our behavior and we stop judging ourselves because when we judge ourselves, when we put this blame and shame on it, it actually makes us deaf because we're so afraid of what we might say or think about ourselves. So we're, so we no longer are willing to be honest with ourselves. One of the things that I'm already appreciating about you, Aaron, is like, you are literally so willing to lean in and to be honest and ask all these questions, which I think is just a huge indicator of like, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, all that being said, I think that it's important to understand that there's a few things at play here, which are that, you know, alcohol is what alcohol is and alcohol does what alcohol does. And, and your human body isn't different than any other human body. So there's, there's things that are happening, um, that you can decide, yeah, are totally worth it, or you can decide are not worth it. And and that's completely and totally your choice. I think, and, and we can go through one of those things, Yes. but one of the things that is really important to know and understand, and I think this is for everybody is that very often that moment of, okay, 10 years and it was, it was okay for a while. And then it wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. Usually that moment has some sort of element of self-medication. And so people, I get asked all the time, well, how come some people can just drink sometimes and not other times? And it's no big deal. And they can do that for years. In most cases, it's because they're never drinking to escape or to self-medicate anything. And if you stay really true to that and you're really, again, so honest with yourself, you can't have guilt and honesty. Those kind of, they don't really exist together because you'll lie to yourself if you feel guilty. Um, But if you are really honest with yourself and you really are never drinking to self-medicate, to, you know, decompress, to release stress. The second part, I think, yes, I do. I admit I don't, I'm not self-medicating, but I can say I have a glass of wine to decompress. Yes, I do. So, so that's, so that's really at. interesting because <laughs> that becomes a slippery slope. Like the brain actually responds in a different way to alcohol. That's when you're drinking to, um, to escape something because it's, and it depends on your stress levels. There's, uh, an interesting documentary that was done on this. It's called pleasure unwoven by Dr. Kevin McCauley. And it's, um, it's hard to get now. And I, I'm not exactly sure why, but I remember watching it early on and his entire premise was that, you know, he did some research when you have a hedonic threshold, which basically means like your threshold of where you feel good. And we all have this, it's, it's like an emotional set, point, right? And if we go over that, our bodies kind of self-correct. And if we go under that, our bodies self-correct. So okay. one of the things that alcohol does is it lifts us up above for a very short period of time, the hedonic threshold, it makes things feel better in the for moment. 20 minutes <laughs> for 20 minutes. And then we come back down, but when we're really stressed out and we drink that drink and it breaks through the stress, even for 20 minutes, your brain learns like, Oh, that's what I needed. And because okay. we feel, and we definitely have a social paradigm that's 
stress is so incredibly toxic that we feel like, oh, okay, yikes, that is something I need to relieve stress. Mm. And I think that 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 idea or that belief can make it hard to, I mean, your brain just learns it. It just learns like, yeah, that's what we do when we're stressed out. Now, alcohol doesn't really work to really stress. Like even one glass of wine releases cortisol in your body. So you feel um, actually physically, chemically more stressed out after one drink than you do before. When you said like, you feel like you need this and it's going to make you feel better, but it's like, be present. And like, at what moment do you start to feel better? And it's like, when you're getting the glass. The alcohol has not even been consumed. It's like the whole process and the whole experience of like, I'm about to have wine. You start feeling better and you didn't have the wine. It's not the wine. (laughs) It's it's what you think about the wine. Right. Yeah, for sure. And that was like a huge aha moment for me because I remember walking out of my office and I was just doing exactly what you're doing. And, and, and I was doing what you're doing without any preconceived ideas or outcomes. Like I was going into it with just total self-compassion and total curiosity. And so I started doing things like, okay, well, how would it be if I drank something else besides wine or how they didn't have any good. Now they have great non-alcoholic IPAs and wines and all sorts of stuff, but they didn't have any of that when I was stopping drinking. Um, and, but I was just like, you know, how would one be? And I would drink one and I would kind of time how, how long it made me feel good. And then how, when my itch for another one came up and how, how hard or easy was it to say no to that itch? And it wasn't impossible, but it was certainly not easy. Right. And I didn't feel like real comfortable saying no to that next glass of wine. I was, I was for sure more in the camp where if I was drinking one beer, I was starting to think about my next beer when I was like, had, you know, a quarter of the beer left. I was like, okay, like, what am I going to drink next? Like it wasn't a, oh, but you know, I have a, I have an aunt who her whole life, she's had a beer a day, like her whole life. And, and for her, that's her rule because her mom overdrank and her dad was like, for sure, huge overdrinker. He's been sober for 40 years. He actually passed away last year, but before that he had been sober for 40 years and he'd have his one non-alcoholic beer every day. And, and so she had her one alcoholic beer and that was it. That was all she did. And it, and it totally stayed there. And I think part of it is because again, her level of awareness around what she was doing and she kind of counted the cost. She's like, okay, I can do this. And this is the cost, right? The cost is that I'm, I'm never having that second one. I'm, I do have to create these rules. Um, I am going to, uh, there might be times when I wish I was going to have another one, but I'm not letting myself. And it was just eyes wide open about what that lifestyle was going to look like. And she was able to maintain it. She actually had one of her daughters pass away. And there was about a year and a half where she started drinking much heavier because of that response to stress. And she had a moment where she could feel it. And she was like, Oh my gosh, here's the slippery slope. And in that moment, she's like, no, that's a no. Like I, I feel it. I'm not going to let myself do it now. Yeah. That level of awareness. Like I agree with you. That is, that is rare. And it's, but I think it's only rare because we are so consumed with the narrative of what we should do and what we ought to do and all the guilt and all the shame that we're not opening ourselves up to that wild, complete honesty. Because when I did that, when I was in your shoes and I was opening myself up to wild and complete honesty, my conclusion was that it's just not worth it. Like it's not worth having one to feel like I kind of want another and I'm going to say, no, it's not worth, um, 
the, uh, the negative feel, like I would for sure when that alcohol after that first one was gone and it was wearing off, I, I was like kind of a little bummed, a little bit down. Um, even if I didn't want another one or couldn't have one, I remember noticing that. And I think another one of the ground rules is that we do not desire something that we don't believe provides a benefit. Yep. I wrote that down. <laughs> so <laughs> why do so, I still think it provides a benefit? <laughs> well, you just told me yeah, because man. the experience it's like cognitive dissonance, like times a million. I savor the glass of wine. Cause I know I'm going to have one. And it's like, you're savoring it. You, you still think it's amazing. I hear that. But I also don't think about that. When you were like, I'm almost done with my beer. I don't want another one, but I, and worried because it is progressive that I, I think just because I'm so aware of it because of your book, I'll have a moment like that and I'll catch it and be like, no, no, no. Because I, right now I am good with a glass of wine, but I'm not good without one. And I will admit that like that one glass of wine. And that's why I was like, I was talking to somebody else about it. And they're like, well, if you're saying you can't go, my sisters will do like a, a cleanse for a week or a um, the, even like a 30 day, like a dry January. And I'm like, I can't do it. And they're like, you can't not drink alcohol. And I'm like, I, I truly, I, or I guess I can't, I could do it. I don't want to do that. And it's just so that I could have my beer or my glass of wine, not so I can binge drink. And they, it's like, so they'll do 30 days. And then I'm like, what is the point? Like February 1st, it's like binge drinking again. But for me, I, I drank the whole month, just my one beer. So February 1st, I'm not binge drinking because it's a part of my lifestyle, but I don't want to go without it. And I feel like I'm not chasing a buzz. I truly am not. Like I would admit, I, I used to throw up my food. I'll tell you everything about me. I'm not chasing a buzz. Am I like, oh, I hope I don't get a buzz. No, I'm fine if I get a buzz from a glass of wine, but that's not what I'm after. So it's not like I have to keep drinking and I, I don't want to mess with my sleep. Like I... I'm a very conscious <laughs> drinker, but I am concerned about, I'm a conscious drinker now. Cause you were at some point, like, I don't want it. Like you said, you didn't let yourself go to a rock bottom moment. I don't want to do that either. And it's like, some people are probably listening to this and be like, what the hell? Like you have a beer or a glass of wine every day. And you think you think you have a problem, but I can't not have it. More squats and margaritas in a moment. Now this. You guys know that I've been on this sober curious journey. And the hardest part has been giving up my IPAs. I have an IPA with chicken wings, with Mexican food. No food tastes quite the same without my beloved IPAs until I found hop water. Hop water is a non-alcoholic sparkling water crafted with bold hops and mood boosting ingredients. Um, yes, I will take some adaptogens, please. You guys, I'm telling you, it tastes like an IPA and I have done the research. I love their classic flavor. There's also a mango, a blood orange, lime, peach, a flavor for everyone. And because you're a Squats and Margaritas listener, you get 20% off your order at hopwater.com. Go to H-O-P-W-T-R.com and use promo code Aaron20 for 20% off. It has zero calories, it's gluten-free, and it tastes like beer. If you are sober curious or just looking to cut back a little, go try hop water. Get 20% off at H-O-P-W-T-R.com using promo code Aaron20. Now back to squats and margaritas. So you're not, you're not chasing a buzz and that's the justification and the rationalization for not wanting uh, the next one and why it's okay, but you are scratching an itch and that, yes. that itch is created by all the previous drinks that you have. Like you, you've trained your brain that at this point in time, we're going to have this type of dopamine rush. And if yes. you don't have it, you're wildly uncomfortable. And so 
Wow. I think that <laughs> it's like, you just have to decide is that because if you, if you stopped doing it and you changed your beliefs around that savoring, or you replaced it with, you found like, you just said, whatever, I'm going to spend 250 bucks. I'm going to buy all the non-alcoholic versions <laughs> of all the wine and all the non-alcoholic versions of all the IPAs. And I'm just going to find my favorites and I'm just going to commit to this. And I'm going to undo the beliefs that it provides a benefit because the, the experience, the taste, that benefit, like yes. there's, there's no, that doesn't hold up anymore. It might've held up eight years ago before all the breweries started brewing non-alcoholic beer, but now like microbreweries are brewing now. So like that doesn't hold up anymore. So, yeah. okay, so fine. But what else is it when it, the thing it is chemically in the brain is that your brain is expecting it. Yes. Every <laughs> single day at the same amount of time with the cues and the cues are the meal and the cooking and the preparation and the <laughs> yeah. enjoyment. And so you've created a patterned response. And if you take the alcohol away, it's uncomfortable. I bet it would still be uncomfortable with a non-alcoholic beer because you've created a patterned response and you just have to say, okay, is that worth the cost? And what is the cost? Well, three drinks a week increases a woman's chance of breast cancer by 15%. Like for me, that's never worth the cost. There's nothing I would do to, you know, three I have friends dying week? left and right from breast cancer. Oh, yes, I didn't realize it was three drinks a week, three drinks a week. And, and when you said one, one drink a day for a woman, I already, so I'm not a mom. You're an excessive drinker. I'm an excessive the, drinker. According to the standards of the And a daily food. drinker. It's like, I'm a um, regular so rationalized it because it's experiential and because there's no binging and because it's yes. better than it used to be. And, and that's totally up to you. You just have to say, what problems do I want? Do I want to the problem of increasing my risk of breast cancer and, you know, maybe leaving my kids without a mom or do I want the no. problem of learning how to, how to handle, uh, you know, distancing myself from this itch and undoing the beliefs that I have around why this is so important. Now yeah. I will give you kudos. You've done a hell of a job. Like you are not in a situation where I'm like super concerned, like, oh my gosh, she's going to, you know, like, I honestly think you could do what you're doing probably for the right, like for the rest of your life. I don't think there's any, and I think that's amazing. And I do think it's rare, but alcohol right. is not safe. Like they're all of, they did a meta study. And what a meta study is, is when they take all of the studies together. Um, and just before I tell you this, I will tell you, I think I could do what you're doing too. I wow. actually for sure think that I could moderate alcohol. I do too. Cause you're I so have aware. No doubt in my mind <laughs> that I could do it mm -hmm. because, but I don't want to, because yeah. why? Yeah. Like when I know everything I know, like why, you know. why would I want to perpetuate that for the people who do have a problem, especially if I had a platform, that's what I'm why worried would about I want to create fear and, you know, and, and be an example to my children who may not be able to respond in the same way that I can, you know, wh why would I do that? Like there's, there's no experience or pairing or justification that I could ever give myself that like, if I do the cost benefit analysis, because I'm not talking about myself anymore. Yeah. And when I, when I think about vehicles that make us feel better, right. The vehicles we all use those because human things, those things like exercise, meditation, Instagram, Netflix, <laughs> whatever, like you need to think, okay, is this good for me? No. Is it good for the people around me? Arguably no. Is it good for the world? Probably not because I'm, I'm creating a paradigm where most people are not like me and I have a platform. And so exercise, is it good for me? Yes. 
Is it good mm-hmm. for the people around me? Yes. Is it good for the world? Yes. And gotcha. so I judge the things that I use to enhance my life or make me feel better by that. Is it good for me? Yes or no. Is it good for the people around me? Yes or no. And is it good for the greater good, the world? Yes or no. And so, you know, and I think again, like you, you asked me here to tell you the truth, but like, yes, I'm fine. Your call. Like that's your call. Like you get to decide whatever you want because yeah, I don't see any danger of you like blacking out tomorrow and waking up in a car wreck or any of those sorts of things. I mean, what, what you've described is kind of what people think, Oh, I just wish I could do that. The interesting thing about that is when most people get to a point where like, yeah, I could do that because your work has totally rewired my brain and I don't see it as important. Yeah. Usually they're like, but they don't want why it. would I want to? Exactly. I'm not there yet, but I could see and then if you, if you looked at it as something that you didn't want, why would you ever have a glass of wine just once? Or like, you don't look at it as something enviable, but what you just said, like us talking that out, that I am a regular excessive drinker, me and what I do, if that is the diagnosis for me in my mind, what I'm picturing of the people in my life that if I am a regular excessive drinker, then there are issues. So I want to use the rest of the time, like not just be going into my moderation, but maybe like, how would you start first? Like if you are listening to this and somebody's like, if she's a moderate excessive drinker, I definitely am. Like, what do you, didn't you say there's like seven things. And if you answer two to them, it's like, you should look at your relationship. Like what are yeah, people, so, should they um, be asking themselves? Yeah. Oh, let me back up and talk about that study that I totally spaced. The meta study, but um, so a meta study is when they study all the studies, right? So when they come in and they and they usually do their own primary research as well as looking at all of the studies that have been done at that topic in the past, and a lot of studies get published, and you know it's like anything else. There's there's good studies and there's bad studies. There's crap. There's studies that are funded by the alcohol industry. I can give Mm. you an example of one of those, um, which is is just mind blowing. Yeah, and and so. There's all of these things, but, but what we don't do is most of us, you're totally an exception. Don't look at things critically. We read the headlines and we allow that to confirm confirmation bias, confirm what we already believe to be true, what we already want to be true around the world and in our own lives. And we say, great, like let myself off the hook because it feels good because it feels better. Now, this meta study was done. It was done two years ago and it was of all the studies that have been done on alcohol and health. And then it did its own primary research mm-hmm. and it came out and it was definitive. No question about it. I think it was like a lot of different universities and doctors conspired on this and they all signed off and it was no amount of alcohol is safe for the human body. Not a little, not moderate, none. Mm. Now that study made a big splash for about two weeks and I'm happy to send you the link. We can include it in the yes. show notes, but um, the, then it was gone right? There's a study that came out about six, eight weeks ago. Mm-hmm. The headline was this, when you drink with a meal, your chance of diabetes <laughs> is decreased by, I think, 14%. Okay? Sweet. <laughs> so everybody's like, oh, amazing. This is amazing. Now this study, at least the published part of this study, because if it's funded by the right people, then they're not going to publish certain conclusions. They're only going to publish the conclusions that they want. Mm-hmm. But this study, if you look at it, only compared people who were drinking with a meal to people who were drinking without a meal. Oh, not to people. It just never compared <laughs> non-drinkers. Okay. 
So the interesting thing about that is yes, a meal will absorb more alcohol in your system. If you're going to drink anything, drinking with a meal is the healthiest way to do it, but it never looked at what is your risk for diabetes? How much does it go down if you don't drink at all? Yeah. And so you have this headline that's like, oh, wow, if I, <laughs> if I drink, I decrease my risk. That's what the brain says. That, that is not what the science says. And stuff like that happened over and over and over. There's been a meta study that's debunked every single time that any study has come out about alcohol and heart health. I was just no going to say, I was like, so red wine is not good for does my Does not exist. Alcohol oh. is not good for your heart, definitively all of that, but, but these things don't get traction because we share things that confirm our decisions. (laughs) We share things that make us feel good and feel better. And even me, I'm not going to go on my Facebook. I mean the naked mind Facebook page. Sure. But like my personal Facebook page, I'm not going to go on there and like, start like just constantly dropping facts about alcohol and cancer and stuff because people are going to be like, like block unfollow, you know? And, and I, I know that for me to have any influence, like I want to be approachable. I want to have a relationship. I want to, you know, be, be having a conversation, but, um, anyway, let me just say first you, your approachability, like you reading, I did the audiobook, like listening to you tell your story. You're not like sitting on your high horse. Like I am a professor of alcoholism and I, you, I mean, you, you're so approachable because you're so vulnerable and you share your story. So it's like, I want to talk to you about it. I don't want to have some professor come on and be like, do you ever, like, do you have any letters next to your name? Like, are you a certified? Okay. Well, I have a master's in science and marketing, well, so nothing to go. do with anything. I have a, no. I don't have a master's. I have a degree <laughs> in marketing, but that, do you ever get imposter syndrome about that? Because like, oh, all the time I talk about time. eating disorders and people are like, what are you like? Are you a nutritionist? And I'm like, but you and I lived through something yeah. that was destroying our lives, made it out on the other side and are making it our mission to help other women out. So it's like, yeah. no, I don't have any letters, but like I, but anytime someone with letters comes at me, I'm always like, Oh, okay. like, I'm sorry. I'm not a professional, but it's like, we should be, able, this is who I want to talk to about this. Cause you get it. Right. You've been through yeah, it. It's like the wounded healer. And I, I mean, I, I couldn't even count the amount of, you know, okay, well tell me where who you are and, and what are your credentials and what are, and I'm always right back. And I'm like, yeah, I, I just, I just have a story. I mean, I, there's nothing else. I just have a story. I shared my story. I just did some research. I shared my research and it like, resonates. There's, there's nothing else. There's nothing I'm claiming to be, you know, I'm not licensed in anything. I'm not, um, I don't have any letters, all that sort of stuff. I, I remember one of the moments of big awakening for me in this imposter syndrome situation is I had a woman on my podcast. I won't mention her name early days. And she had like, I'd connected with her and she has to be on my podcast. And my podcast is all about people sharing their own stories. Right. And so, you know, I had, I had gone back and forth with her and I got her on the podcast and I asked her to share her own story. And she goes, Oh, well, I drink regularly. I'm not addicted to alcohol. I just help other people stop. And I was like, how does that work? <laughs> She's like drinking in the session. <laughs> Hold on. I got to get a beer. Yeah. And, that doesn't work. And then uh, I kept getting <laughs> letters from her about like, I'm so frustrated because you're so much, you're, you're so much more, your stuff is working so much better yeah. than my stuff. And I'm like, oh my, oh my gosh. Like, I mean, maybe we don't all have to live it to be able to teach it, but you know, I certainly want it, wouldn't want to gosh, learn how to 
drive from someone who's just read the manual, right? Like, I don't know. It just seems so counterintuitive to me, but it is, it is the paradigm we live in that if you don't have the credentialing, you know, people are going to have something to say about that. But real world, like, like it's like, check my downloads. You can check my downloads or check my Amazon sales. Like you, you're resonating. Like it's showing that that's where people go. And really quickly, I, um, I spoke with Gabby Bernstein in Nashville last month and there were all these like letter people, (laughs) like, uh, they were all some sort of leadership coach mentor and I'm last. And I'm like, uh, I've, in my mind, I'm like, people are like, how did this girl even like sneak on this panel? And I'm just like, I'm here to tell my story, like what I've been through, what I've learned and how, what I've learned can help you. And Annie, there was a happy hour after my, uh, I spoke and I had a line and what they were asking me was, uh, we want, you know, we want you to coach us like where we want more. And I was like, I don't, I'm not a coach. Like my intention was not to get life coaching clients. I just shared my story and I had the line. So like the the person that didn't have the letters or any certifications, it's like people, they don't want to be judged and like sat with somebody with a clipboard. Like, "Mm, how much are you Mm -hmm. drinking? Your beginning of your book, like you, you're so raw and like vulnerable about it. You, that's who I want to talk to. And if someone's going to make me drink less, it's going to be someone like you, not someone with a clipboard. So yeah. Just wanted to say that, um, That's awesome. download yeah. Annie's same, book. Same with you. Um, <laughs> it's just awesome. Uh, so the alcohol use disorder scale, uh, yes. basically there's, I, I think it's either 11 or 12 questions because we've totally scientifically and medically moved away from the term alcoholic. It's just, you know, agreed that it's outdated because there's no true definition for it. Even your doctors would say, well, only you can know, only you can decide, but they do have a scale of use and abuse of alcohol. And also just interesting side note, I think it's really interesting how alcoholic is the only one that we use where the blame is squarely on the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have cocaineaholics or cigaretteaholics. Yep. Um, we have people who are addicted to a substance. We don't have, we haven't defined the human being by the behavior, but with alcohol, we define the human being by the behavior, even to the extent where you know, we have this toxic addictive substance, which by the way, alcohol kills more people every year than all prescription and illegal drugs combined. And yet we have these huge long disclaimers on these prescription drug commercials. The only thing we have on an alcohol bottle, if it's even there is drink responsibly and puts the blame firmly on the individual. If you human can't drink responsibly, this is your problem. It's not the problem that we've all agreed. Yeah. Alcohol is addictive. Nobody is, nobody is uh, disagreeing with that fact. And we have, you know, somehow through lobbyists and, you know, the fact that the alcohol is so massive. Nobody spends more on advertising than the alcohol industry. Um, we've, we've created this paradigm where if you can't handle yourself, the shame is just perpetuated. And interestingly, if everybody did drink responsibly tomorrow, 80% of the alcohol industry sales would go away. They'd all go out of business. So Mm. their businesses are built on the people who don't drink responsibly. And again, for me, like, I just don't want to be part of any of that crap. Like it's just all such crap. Right. But in the alcohol use disorder scale, there are, you know, those 11 or 12 questions, two of those questions, if you answer two affirmatively and you say yes to two, you have mild alcohol use disorder. One of those questions is, do you need to drink more than you used to, to get the same effect? And the other one is, do you ever have moments where you wish you drank less Mm -hmm. so that you regret drinking as much as you did? And, you know, every drinker I know can answer those two questions as a yes. Right. 
So we're, but we, we've created this as if it's a conversation for this fringe population who are alcoholics Not rather me. than looking at what it is, which is an everybody conversation, you know, everybody, we need to be having this conversation. So what if somebody answers both of those, like what I think would be, I was going to ask you a first step, but like you have the alcohol experiment, which I think is so cool. Like, would that be like somewhere someone could start to kind of explore? Yeah. So the alcohol experiment is just like, and, and if you do it, it's an experiment 30 days without drinking. But I think one of the main things that we get wrong about trying to change our behavior, and you probably really well know this from the work you've done is we try to just change the behavior. We don't allow ourselves to know any new facts and those things we know actually would change how we feel. And I said, you know, without desire, there is no temptation. How do we get at the root of the desire? Well, we do that through knowledge. When we know new things, we want something less. Like I don't want alcohol, not because I'm forcing myself on not to want it, but because I know so much about the substance, I'm like, why would anybody ever drink that? If we discovered it today, we certainly wouldn't like say, oh yeah, this is a good idea. Let's Mm -hmm. market this to our youth, right? Right. Like that just wouldn't happen. Um, If we discovered it and we knew how many people it killed and how it's correlated to every single sexual abuse, domestic abuse, child abuse, um, you know, 80% of uh, first responder calls have alcohol related, 75% of suicides, alcohol related. Like we would, we would see alcohol and we'd be like, okay, no, thank you. We're going to pass, but that's not what's happening. And so when I, when you know that much, like I would never do it just out of principle, right? Like there's just nothing in me that would want to perpetuate that. That being said, when we usually try to change our behavior, we try to change it by just, okay, I'm going to put it down. I'm just going to stop. And, but we don't know anything new and therefore we don't feel anything new. And so we're trying to stop something we still want to do. The desire is still there. And we're trying to force ourselves, use willpower to stop the behavior. Every day you get new knowledge mm-hmm. and that changes your emotions. So yes, you're doing a dry January, you're doing a sober July or a sober October, a dry July, whatever it is, but you're doing it every day with a new knowledge every Mm -hmm. day is a a paradigm shift, which changes how you feel. So instead of at day 15, somebody being like, Oh man, I just, I have to get through the next 15 days. I wish I could do it at day 15. People are like, huh, maybe I don't really want to do this anymore. And then at day 30, it's not like, okay, tomorrow I'm just going to binge. It's like at day 30, (laughs) you're like, huh, maybe I'll do another 30 days. Right. Yeah. And I get so many letters. I got one this morning from someone who's like a year ago today, I started a 30 day alcohol experiment, no intention of stopping drinking. And, you know, I don't think I'll ever do it again. And because we're changing what, you know, which changes how you feel. And then the behavior becomes easy right? Easy to yeah. do whatever you want with it, whether that's moderate, whether that's stop drinking, whatever you want, it becomes so much easier. Um, so yes, I think that's a good place to start, but no matter if you start with the alcohol experiment, which is always free, it's on, in an app, it's alcoholexperiment.com. Um, or you just start, I think the most important thing is just getting really curious about your behavior and putting down the guilt, because if you have any guilt and shame about your behavior, you will not be honest with yourself. Yeah. And so the only way to be totally honest with yourself is through curiosity to realize hundred percent. We have been set up to fail with this one. Y'all like it is just cards are stacked against us. And the reality is that we are doing the best we can with the tools we have. The reality is that your brain is working exactly how the human brain should work. If you're drinking too much, if you want it, even though like, you know, even if you just want the one and, and you don't see a way out of wanting the one, your brain is doing exactly what it was created to do. It is 
responding exactly how it's supposed to respond. The problem is that that dopamine that it's responding to, the thing that is in the dopamine, it actually isn't good for your survival. It actually, you know, it's, it's really harmful to the body. Um, but dopamine and a lot of other things are what trick the brain into thinking I need this thing, but mm -hmm. your brain gets tricked to a point where it thinks I need this in order to survive because that's what dopamine is. It's the learning molecule. And so an overstimulation of dopamine is going to tell your brain, I need this and I need it, not just need it because it's fun, not just need it because it's relaxing. I need it to survive. Yeah. I need it like yeah. I need food or water. And that's like on a very neurological subconscious level, you're not thinking those thoughts, but man, when you try to put it down, it's not easy. And when it's not easy, it's not because your brain is broken. It's not because you're an alcoholic. It's not because anything's wrong with you. It's just because the substance is addictive. And, mm -hmm. you know, and so I think, you know, if we can awaken some self-compassion and don't put the rules on yourself, like forget the rules. Mm -hmm. I, I say all the time that the most important thing to start with is a, an emotion-based goal. Forget, forget your behavior for a minute, just put it aside. And, you know, when people come to me and I say, what's your goal around alcohol? They say, I want to moderate. I want to have only a few a week. I want to drink less. I want to take a break. I want to get sober, whatever. And I say, how does that goal make you feel? And people are like, oh, anxious, tired, <laughs> heavy, miserable, anxious, upset. And I'm like, okay, forget all of that. How do you want to feel in your relationship with alcohol? And for me, that was the goal I created. I wanted to, I wanted to feel like alcohol was smaller than irrelevant. I didn't want it to have control over me. I didn't want this fermented liquid in a glass to dictate how I felt if I did or didn't do it. I wanted it to be a non-issue. I wanted it to be small and irrelevant. If I found that goal, that small and irrelevancy, drinking, fine. If I found it not drinking, fine. I actually put aside the behavior entirely because actually behavior doesn't dictate success. There's tons of people who don't drink and are freaking miserable. That's mm -hmm. never good enough for me. That is horrible. That's a horrible way to live. That's actually how we perpetuate drinking because then people think getting sober is miserable like yeah. I did. And, but if we say, okay, how do I want to feel in my relationship with alcohol? Some people want to feel in control. Some people want to feel free. Some people want to feel unshackled. Some people, you know, and I say, how do you feel about that goal? They feel great. And you know what? You're going to move toward a, a goal that makes you feel really good. I want to feel powerful. Awesome. You're going to move toward that goal, right? Like, whereas I want to, you know, get sober by the time I'm on a podcast with Annie, that goal's <laughs> going to make you feel like crap. Like there's, I, there, and then you have shame because I'm like, goal, right. hi, I didn't do it. Uh, I had a glass of wine <laughs> right, last and night. It perpetuates the, the shame, shame and blame and then the dishonesty. But if you're like, okay, you know what? Actually, I'm a smart and control, really powerful woman. And I want to feel powerful in this area of my life. Yeah. I do not want to feel like I can't, you know, take a break. Like I want, I want my power back. Like, how does that goal make you feel? And, I, and you do whatever goal you want or not. But I think the important thing is that when we look at just the behavior in a vacuum, we set ourselves up to fail. We set ourselves up for that blame and shame. And we have to look at how we feel because everything we do, we do to feel a certain way. Um, and we don't want things that we don't think will make us feel a certain way. We don't, exactly. we don't want things uh, that we don't see a benefit in. Or that will make us feel a certain way for 20 minutes and then horrible after that. It's like when you realize it's just that, or when you're talking about the dopamine, this may be a stupid question. Like the dopamine is not, you're not getting that hit of dopamine from alcohol, right? You're getting it from your habit that you've created. And, um, or is that not right? Like when you- No, you're getting it from alcohol. Okay. Um, so your body is overcompensating right before you have that drink. So all the okay. cues are saying, hey, 
you know, Aaron's going to pour this drink. Look, she's getting it ready. She's doing this. She's doing that. And so your body is, is preparing for the onslaught of the alcohol. It's pre-gaming itself. So it can make it as, as less toxic as possible. And so it's trying to prepare to maintain homeostasis through the toxin you're about to drink. And so when you don't drink it, it's wildly uncomfortable. Now, if you don't drink it for a while and you undo your mental beliefs, because that's really important, you're not going to have that discomfort because that discomfort is only because you've created a pattern to response. Okay. And it's, it's like, you know, I heard it. Let me see if I can get this analogy on, right. It's like, so alcohol is a depressant, right? So alcohol is a depressant. It, it depresses, it makes your, your actual neurons fire slower, which feels like relief. If you have a brain that's racing, 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 um, it creates a, a, a depressed nature. Like it, it kind of like does that your brain right before you drink it, it sees all the cues. It goes, okay, we're about to take on this dose of depressant. So I'm going to turn up the simulant because I need to maintain homeostasis. That's why you stop even really feeling alcohol when you drink Mm -hmm. it regularly. You don't even feel it anymore, but you still feel the craving to do it because your brain says, I'm going to turn up the stimulant. So it's like a car that, you know, every day you're, you know, the brakes are coming on. And then one day you don't put those brakes on that stimulant is going crazy. And that stimulant is really uncomfortable. That's like anxiety. That's like uneasiness. That's discomfort. And so you feel wildly uncomfortable. You don't feel wildly uncomfortable because you're not drinking. You feel wildly uncomfortable because of the response, all the drinks you had before that drink. And then when it comes down, you're like the wine, just help me not feel all that craziness that you created by drinking. (laughs) Right. Remember when I said like, you have an itch. Yes. The alcohol created the itch. Yeah, totally. So it's like, if I had a drink right now and I did this, this is one of my many experiments. I just like, after three or four months of not drinking, I just drank and every single glass of wine, I'd I'd like record how it made me feel. And I I like did it all in front of a camera. Mm -hmm. It's actually on day, like 28 of the alcohol experiment, kind of a synopsis. It was like four hours of video, but I, I cut it down to like 16 minutes, but I did all that. And when you don't have an itch, scratching is not comfortable. (laughs) Like drinking by itself doesn't, it just kind of makes you feel dizzy. It makes the room kind of feel like it's closing in. It, It makes you like, even that first 20 minutes, like it's not all that great. Like, but if you have an itch, it's really great because scratching an itch feels really good. Yeah. But alcohol created the itch. Okay. I love that. Um, I've had you for an hour. I want to close it with. I'm just trying to think I, I use so much of that time selfishly to like talk through my moderation. The people that I know in my life that may drink that are drinking a lot may have a problem with alcohol. When I go through the liminal points, I would think that the number one, that would be the scariest. It's like social, like they need a drink to like, be able to have fun and not so much to just like fit in. Cause everybody else is drinking. Like you feel like you need to have a drink or like, that's why people pregame before they go out. You did like the selfie uh, it's like, you think you're funnier and you're like sexier, but it's the opposite. Can you talk about that? Cause I think that made me look at it a completely different way when you did selfie videos of drunk Annie. Yeah. I, I highly recommend that for anybody who thinks they're really being funny or looking good after a few drinks, do some selfie videos and then watch them sober. Um, yep. it is like you cannot escape it. You just know your eyes, like the light kind of goes out of them. And, and by the way, just get around somebody who's, who's buzzed or drunk, you know, they're not as cool as they are when they were sober. You, Mm -hmm. you just like know it unless you're also buzzed or drunk. And then you can't really tell, but, um, but I think that the, the 
thing about, you know, socializing is it's really what problem do you want, right? Do you want the problem of learning how to socialize without a crutch or do you want the problem of needing the crutch? And the crutch is going to, because you've used it before, because you've accustomed yourself to using it, it's going to make it feel easier in the moment. Um, It's not actually doing anything that makes socializing easier besides making you less aware of yourself, which arguably could make socializing easier, but it's also making you less aware of other people. Uh, There's also a huge, huge health cost, obviously. Um, But when you learn how to socialize without alcohol, gosh, it is so dang empowering. I was just when you, you learn took the how to guess. enjoy your was, life without alcohol. I feel like, empowered now. It's like I totally drink less. And it's like if we go, it's just binge drinking. When your beer is gone, you get another one. And I've just never been that way. So like I got a beer when everybody else got a beer. And then it was like they went to get their second one, um, another round. I was like, no, I'm good. Then they went to get the third one. I was like, still good. And if you talk about this too, like be ready to for people to feel uncomfortable that you're not drinking because it yeah. makes them question their drinking. It's like, well, why aren't you? I'm like, no, I'm good. And they go get another. And then it's like, they think there's something wrong with them because they're you're stopping. So you're questioned. I know you talk yeah. about that in your book. People <laughs> like, they're like, but everybody's going to be uncomfortable if I don't drink yeah. and they're going to get upset with me. Yeah. That all might be a little bit true, but they're only doing it for one of two reasons, either because they worry that you're going to be too good for them or you're going to judge them or they're worried about their own drinking and you're just holding up a mirror to their own behavior. Yep. And so if you can just like, what I do is I just try to overdo making other people feel comfortable. Like I'll be the one that goes and buys the round. Right. Or, you know, just like really make sure that like, no, not here to judge you. I'm not too good. Like I'm, I'm just in it with you. Like there's nothing, there's nothing between you and I, because, um, obviously that can harm a relationship. And you said that in your book, because you are that way, when one of your friends is starting to struggle with alcohol, they come to you because you're like not judgmental about it. And you're, so you can like kind of pass it on and pay it forward. I went on a a girl's weekend last weekend, um, to, uh, like one of my girlfriends from college, her mom has a, her parents have a house on a lake. And so we all road tripped out there. And of course, you know, nobody's drinking. And my son who's 13, he's like, mom, do none of your friends drink because of you? And, and I'm like, you know what, it, that is a good question. I can't <laughs> pretend to know, but I do know that we all did drink and then slowly, but surely wow. like nobody does anymore. And, um, you know, they might have a drink on occasion or something, but like, there's just not even a thing like nobody's, and I don't even realize it until my 13 year old brings it up. I'm like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Nobody's drinking here. And, and there's no, there's no discomfort in it either. You know? Yes. If anybody's inspired and they want to kind of make a change, can you just tell like where to join your community and where to find you? Awesome. So um, I have a podcast also, it's called This Naked Mind. That is a great place to start. And then the alcohol experiment is always free and it is at alcoholexperiment.com. And then my website is thisnakedmind.com. Same with my book. I have two books, Alcohol Experiment and This Naked Mind. So all of those places. Thank you for saying yes to me. This was everything that I wanted this conversation to be. Yay. It was really fun. Thanks so much, Aaron. Thanks for your honesty. And just like, it's just really cool to to see you're modeling something very cool. Thank you so much for listening to the Squats and Margaritas podcast. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And I'll see you next week for a brand new episode of Squats and Margaritas.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.